Hello, dear listeners. Welcome to the Enduring Word podcast. Enduring Word is a free online Bible commentary written by Pastor David Guzik and is used daily as a trusted resource for millions of believers around the world. We are honored to present the wisdom of the Bible to you, one chapter and verse at a time, to help you grow in your understanding of God's Word. Pastor David is teaching through the book of Genesis. We're beginning Genesis chapter 2 today, verses 1 through 17, and focusing on Adam in the Garden of Eden. As we continue on in our study through the book of Genesis, today we come to chapter 2. We're going to begin at the first verse, and we're going to talk about Adam in the Garden of Eden. So let's take a look at this now. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, the first three verses of the chapter where we read, Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. Verse 2 of Genesis chapter 2 clearly tells us, that God rested on the seventh day following the six days of creation, which were detailed for us in Genesis chapter 1. Now, it's important to say that when we read in verse 2 that God rested on the seventh day, God did not need rest on the seventh day because he was tired. God rested to show that his creating work was done and also to give a pattern to humanity regarding the structure of time that is in putting things in seven-day weeks. And then furthermore, to give an example to humanity, and especially to his own people, of the blessing of rest to man on the seventh day. There's something curious as to how the seven-day week is sort of permanently ingrained in humanity. Now, it's true that throughout history, there's been some attempts to change the seventh-day week. I'm no great expert on it, but apparently during the French Revolution, uh, there was an attempt to make a 10-day week. But those attempts have really come to nothing. I would suggest that we are on a seven-day cycle of time because God himself is on a seven-day cycle of time. And this is just one small aspect of what it means that we are made in the image of God. Then verse 3 says that God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. God sanctified the seventh day because it was a gift to man for rest and replenishment. And because most of all, The rest of the Sabbath is a shadow of the rest that is available through the person and work of Jesus Christ, God's Messiah and the Savior of the world. This is explained to us more fully in the New Testament. I think of a couple prominent passages. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 say this, So, Let no one judge you in food or in drink or in regard to a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. 
You see, the subject of the Sabbath is a little bit complicated because the Sabbath wasn't given for merely one reason. Part of the reason why the Sabbath was given was just because that is how we as human beings are engineered. We need rest, and taking one day in seven is a good pattern, a good cycle of rest. You could just sort of categorize that under the manufacturer's recommendations for these things that he's built, these human bodies that he's made us with. But then there's another aspect of the Sabbath, how God gave it as a religious obligation under the Old Covenant, with penalties assigned for failing to keep the Sabbath. Now, you could say that when it comes to just how human beings are engineered, there is a penalty for not keeping the Sabbath, but the penalty is that we don't operate as well. We don't operate at peak efficiency, nor at peak joy and happiness. But again, under the old covenant, the Sabbath was given as a command, as a law, and there were religious penalties applied for the failing to keep the Sabbath. Now, in that regard, Christians, believers today, are not under obligation to observe the Sabbath because the principle that I just read to you in Colossians chapter 2, the Sabbath is a shadow. The reality is the rest that we have in Jesus Christ. In Jesus, the purpose for the Sabbath is fulfilled, at least in regard to its religious and ceremonial aspect. You can talk about a practical aspect of the Sabbath that is still practical and good for us to observe today, but it's not in the same sense as it was observed under the Old Covenant. That's why Paul can say, as I read to you before in Colossians chapter 2, don't let anybody judge you in regard to your observance of the Sabbath. That is a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. It's as if God was proclaiming through the Sabbath, There is a rest from work that is provided by my son, Jesus Christ, and that rest from work will come and be fulfilled in the Sabbath, and under the Sabbath, we can find that rest. And for believers, we rest from our works in Jesus Christ. Let me read to you a related passage to this Galatians chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. Paul writes here, But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. Here, in Galatians chapter 4, verses 9 through 11, Paul expresses concern that the Galatian believers are starting to depend on and rely on their observance of days and months and seasons and years. These are not the grounds for our right relationship with God. And so we need to understand that if a believer today wants to keep the Sabbath, sort of as a religious custom, as a religious they have complete freedom in Jesus Christ to do so, they should just not think that it makes them any more right with God than the believer who does not observe the Sabbath in this way. 
Let me read to you one more passage from the New Testament relevant to this. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 through 11, we read this. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us, therefore, be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Now, again, we have this very powerful picture in Hebrews chapter 4 that the Sabbath was a shadow, was a picture of something that God would reveal in Jesus Christ, and that is the rest from works in the sense of salvation, the rest from self-justifying works, and instead trusting in Jesus Christ and our finding rest in him. You could say that the Hebrews chapter 4 passage emphasizes that Christians do not lose the Sabbath. No, every day is a day of rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Every day is specially set apart to God. Now, I say all that in regard to what we might call the religious observance of the Sabbath. But let me point out, Though we are free from the legal obligation of the Sabbath, we dare not ignore the importance of a day of rest. God has built us, he's engineered us, so that we need a day of rest. I have to say, personally, this is something that I've had difficulty with throughout my entire life. I don't know, I I guess I'm sort of a driven person. I'm accomplishment-oriented. I I like to work hard. I enjoy working hard. And it it doesn't come easy for me to say, I'm going to set apart this day and do no work on it. But I'll tell you, I think I would be better off in my life if I was better at that. So God has built us so that we need rest. And one day out of seven is God's ordained pattern for that. I do want to emphasize this. God has also commanded us to work six days. It's very interesting how in the book of Exodus, when God gives the Sabbath command to Israel as part of the old covenant, the way he states it is, you shall work six days and the seventh day you shall take rest. Adam Clark, an old commentator, said this. He said, he who idles his time away in the sixth days is equally guilty in the sight of God as he who works on the seventh. And I think this is something for us to think about. In our modern world of five-day work weeks or four-day work weeks and very generous vacation time, I think that We don't have to work necessarily at our careers or at our office or whatever sort of place a person might work at. We don't have to work there, but surely more of our leisure time could be given to the work of the Lord. In any regard, back to Genesis chapter 2, we see that in verse 3, it says that in it, he rested from all his work in the seventh day, that is. God rested on the seventh day of creation. He didn't institute the Sabbath or show us his rest for his own sake. God does not take the Sabbath off. It's kind of interesting. Jesus said 
in John chapter 5, verse 17, in regard to a Sabbath controversy, Jesus said this, my father has been working until now and I have been working. And in the context, you see what Jesus means by that is he's saying God doesn't take the Sabbath off. Aren't we glad that God doesn't take the Sabbath off? Aren't we glad that God doesn't take the Sabbath, whether you would regard more literally the Sabbath as Saturday or or in a Christianized context, the Sabbath as Sunday. Aren't you glad that God doesn't take one day off a week and say, I'm not going to answer your prayers. I'm not going to keep the universe going. I'm not going to bring salvation to people who need it. No, God works every day since Genesis chapter 2, but he rested on that seventh day, not because he needs a day off, but because man needs to see the rest of God and he needs to know that he can enter into it by the finished work of Jesus. There's something interesting. As we went through the first six days of creation in Genesis chapter 1, we saw that at the end of every one of those days, it had the phrase, so the evening and the morning were the first day, or the second day, or the third day, whatever. The evening and the morning were the day. However, the seventh day of creation does not have that phrase. And this is because God's rest for us is not confined to one literal day. One literal day of the week? One literal day on the calendar? No. In Jesus, God has an eternal Sabbath rest for his people. Now, let's go on to verse 4, where it speaks of the history of the heavens and the earth. Genesis chapter 2, starting now at verse 4. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, before any plant of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown, For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Verse 4 tells us, beginning with this phrase, This is the history of the heavens and the earth. It's interesting. That phrase or a similar phrase is used several times in the book of Genesis to sort of mark a division. And there is something of a division between Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 through Genesis chapter 2 verse 3, and then now a little bit different starting at verse 4. You see, we would say this probably ends the genealogy or the history of the heavens and the earth, a history that was given directly by God to either Moses or Adam, recording the history of God's seven-day creation. Obviously, this was something that no human being was present to witness, so it had to be revealed by God. And it describes in verse 4, in the day that the Lord God made the earth in the heavens. Now, in our English Bibles, this is the first word of 
use of the word Lord or Yahweh in the Bible. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Yahweh is the covenant name of God. In an older context, sometimes people pronounce that word Jehovah. You'll find that in many older English writings. But we've come to understand in the last few generations that really the more correct pronunciation of that holy name of God, what is sometimes called the Tetragrammaton, represented sometimes in the Hebrew by four letters, and oftentimes uh, the unutterable name in an observant Jewish context, Yahweh or Yahweh, this is the first use of Yahweh in the Bible, translated Lord there. Out of respect, many Bible translations don't put the name Yahweh there. They simply say Lord. This follows a pattern from the Septuagint and other early translations. Now, if you're curious, our English word Lord comes from an old Anglo-Saxon word for bread, just like our English word loaf. Because ancient English men of very high stature would keep something of a continual open house where everyone could come in and get bread to eat at a table. They gained the honorable title of lords, meaning dispensers of bread. And that's how it became associated with people or persons of high standing. So that's the first use of Yahweh in the Hebrew Bible and Lord in translated in many English versions. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, under verse 5, where we observe that this work of creation began, verse 5, before any plant of the field was in the earth. You see, the history begins before there was any vegetation on the earth at all. Back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. At a time when there were only space and a watery globe that we know as the earth. And when God first did create vegetation, verse 5 points out, that the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth. Now, again, we know from Genesis chapter 1, verses 11, 12, and 13, that on the third day of creation, God created vegetation. Man had not yet been created to care for the vegetation of the earth. And there was no rain. Look, there's some of this that's just speculation. But some people have speculated that this division of the waters of the firmament of waters in the sky and the waters that were later divided into the seas, the oceans on earth, that in the sky, this made for a thick blanket of water vapor in the outer or upper atmosphere created on the second day of creation back in Genesis chapter one, verses six, seven, and eight. And the idea is is that this very thick blanket of water vapor in the upper atmosphere made for no rain cycle as we today know it, but instead for a very rich system of evaporation condensation that resulted in something that we would call like a heavy dew on the ground or something of a ground fog. That's how the plants on the earth were watered before rain properly fell 
in the world before the flood. Now, in the midst of all of that, and again, these verses here, verses 4 through 7 in Genesis chapter 2, we're sort of summarizing what happened in Genesis chapter 1. Verse 7 tells us that the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. When God created man, he made made him out of the most basic element, the dust of the ground. Friends, there's nothing spectacular in what man is made of. Uh, I remember reading somewhere about somebody who took the chemical composition of what the human body's made of. You know, it's this much calcium, it's this much carbon, it's this much this, it's this much enamel, whatever it is, and added up the value of those different parts that make up the human body. And it wasn't worth a whole lot in monetary terms. You could say that there's nothing spectacular in what man is made of, but in the way that those basic things are organized, well, that is spectacular. But sort of the building material God used, as it says there in verse 7, he formed man of the dust of the ground. You know, when the Bible uses dust in a figurative or symbolic sense, it means something that has little worth something that is associated with lowness and humility. Later on in Genesis chapter 18, Abraham speaks to the Lord and he says this. This is Genesis chapter 18, verse 27. Indeed, now, if I, who am but dust and ashes, have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. You see, dust and ashes, it's just something that's worth of little value. Later on in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 8, as part of Hannah's prayer, she says, He, meaning God, raises the poor from the dust. And then later on in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 2, God is speaking to a king of Israel named Jehu, and he says, Inasmuch as I lifted you out of the dust and made you a ruler over my people Israel. You see, dust in the Bible... It isn't something evil. It isn't something that's nothing. But sort of in the biblical context, it's next to nothing. The raw material used for the creation of humanity is in and of itself not worth much, but what God made of it because of how he made man in his image. It's worth something. As is reflected, moving on now into verse 7, where it says, And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. See, God took this being made of dust, breathed the divine life into him. Then man became a living being. That phrase, living being, is also used of other forms of animal life. You can find the same phrasing in Genesis chapter 1, verse 20, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 21. Yet only man is a living being who is made in the image of God. We sort of observed this before. If you want to take it just from a biological perspective, from a structural perspective, humanity shares a lot of similarities with all mammals on this earth. You know, a a spine, a rib cage, limbs, kind of all the rest of that. But the difference is not so much in the materials of which we are made, 
but in the image of God upon us. And that image of God is somehow connected with the breath of God that is breathed in us. That word for breath in Hebrew, if I can pronounce it even vaguely correctly, is ruach. And that word sort of imitates the very sound of breath, ruach, breathing in, breathing out. It's the same word in Hebrew that's used for breath, that's used for spirit, and is also used for wind. By the way, it's the same way in the ancient Greek language of the New Testament. That Greek word is pneuma. And even in Latin, the Latin word is spiritus, used for spirit, used for breath, used for wind. God created man by putting his breath, his spirit, within him. I like what James Montgomery Boyce says about this. He says that the implication that would be readily seen by any Hebrew reader is that man was specially created by God's breathing some of his own breath into him. That's what God did. God took some of his own breath, his own spirit, so to speak, and breathed it into man. Now, the King James Version, maybe I should have talked about this before in our study through Genesis. I'm teaching through the new King James Version. Uh, That's my preferred translation. I I do know that there's other good Bible translations out there, but for many reasons that I don't get into right now. My preferred Bible translation is the new King James Version, but in the King James Version, the older King James, it reads this, man became a living soul. Now that makes some people wonder, If man is a soul, that's sort of the implication of the King James Version there in verse 7, or if man has a soul, this passage would seem to indicate that man is a soul, but there's other passages, especially in the New Testament, such as 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, and Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Those seem to indicate that man is has a soul. I would suggest to you that the scripture speaks in both ways, and it uses the term soul in different ways and in different contexts, and it's really up to the Bible reader, the Bible student, to just pay careful attention to context and see how soul is used in that particular way. Now coming to verses 8 and 9, where we see Adam in the Garden of Eden, we're going to see this description of the two trees in the Garden of Eden. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eden was a garden specifically planted by God. It was a place God made to be a perfect habitation for Adam and later Eve. So again, verse 8 tells us that the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And there, in that garden, verse 8 tells us, 
that there he put the man whom he had formed. Now, the details in the creation of Adam and Eve teach us something. After reading Genesis chapter 1, we might have assumed that man and woman were made at the same time. But as the account continues into Genesis chapter 2, we learn that there was a different time in the creation of man and woman. That man, that is Adam, the first man, was created first, and then later Eve was created out of him. That's something that we didn't pick up on in Genesis chapter 1, just sort of giving us a summary, but Genesis chapter 2 makes that distinction. We'll get to that a little bit later. Look now at verse 9, where it says that out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree grow. Now, it's important to say that the rest of Genesis chapter 2 does not present a different or contradictory account of creation. Rather, it is the history of creation, what we might say, from Adam's perspective. I would say here we begin with Adam's experience of creation. It doesn't contradict the account that we've read starting at Genesis chapter 1 and continuing on to chapter 2 verse 7. It doesn't contradict that account. It fills it out. It's a very Hebraic way of telling a story. You tell the story, maybe in a summary sense, And then for the sake of emphasis, you go back and tell it again, maybe filling out different parts of the story. As a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 and 5, Jesus referred to events in Genesis 1 and events in Genesis 2 as being one harmonious account. Now, the reason why I bring this up is every once in a while, you'll have people who will try to tell you that there are two contradictory accounts of creation in the book of Genesis. They'll say, see, Genesis 1 through chapter 2, verse 7, that's one account. And then starting now at verse 8, that's a second account. And the two of them are contradictory. Friends, it's not true at all. They don't contradict each other at all. It is just a very Hebraic way of telling a story to tell it, to tell it again, not only for the sake of emphasis, but then to fill in some details that were not indicated in the first telling. Now, we read here in verse 9 that in the Garden of Eden there was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. These two trees were among all the other trees God created and put into the Garden of Eden. We shouldn't think that there were only two trees in the Garden of Eden. Conceivably, there there were hundreds, thousands of trees everywhere, just part of God's rich, uh, verdant creation. But there were two special trees. The first of those special trees is indicated in verse 9, called the tree of life. You could say that the tree of life was given to grant, or maybe more properly, to sustain eternal life. Genesis chapter 3, verse 22, reveals this. God speaking now after the fall, we'll get to that in a few studies, 
But after the fall, God says this, and now lest he put out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. The, the implication there is clear that if humanity had continual access to the tree of life, then humanity would never die. So the tree of life seemingly was to grant or to sustain eternal life. And significantly, God still has a tree of life available to his people. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, Jesus, in dictating a letter to one of the churches of New Testament times, made this promise. He said, to him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And then later on, Revelation chapter 22, verse 2, makes a reference to the tree of life in heaven. So this idea of the tree of life doesn't end with the Garden of Eden. It continues on into heaven beyond. Now, that's the first tree. The second tree is also described in verse 9 of Genesis chapter 2, where it speaks to us of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You could call that the temptation tree. Eating the fruit of that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, would give Adam an experiential knowledge of good and evil. And and that's what it would do. Now, Adam knew by experience goodness all around him. Everything in creation was good. God declared it so. Everything in the Garden of Eden was good. God declared it so. But what Adam did not have was an experiential knowledge of evil. Eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would impart to Adam both aspects. He would, already from the environment that he was, so to speak, born in, he would have a knowledge of good. And by transgressing against God's command, by committing an evil act, Adam would have experiential knowledge of the evil. It's also, in a secondary sense, called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Not so much that man would know good and evil, but so that God could test good and evil in man. You could say, in a secondary sense, it's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because by that tree, God and all creation would know good or evil in humanity. If they obeyed God, that would be a demonstration of good in humanity. If they disobeyed God, that would be a demonstration of evil in humanity. We'll get more to that tree the next time we're in Genesis chapter 3. We'll have a study in between there. But when we eventually get to Genesis chapter 3, we'll, of course, talk more about this tree. Now, verses 10 through 14 describe rivers in the garden. Here we go, starting now at verse 10. Now, a river went out of Eden to water the garden. And from there it parted and became four river heads. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hidekel, or Tigris. It is the one which goes towards the east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. You see, the whole feel of this account gives the sense 
that it was written by an actual eyewitness of the rivers and the surroundings. I know it's a crazy thought. Well, crazy in the eyes of some, it's not crazy to me. But I, I would suggest to you that Adam wrote this himself. That, that this is Adam's account. And some people, well, no, there wasn't writing that far back. Well, why not? Yes, it could have also been transmitted as an oral history. But I believe this is Adam's account. This is Adam's eyewitness account of the rivers that go out of Eden. And then there's given specific names of the river. Pishon is the name of one. Then the second river, Gihon. The third river, Hittichol, or also Tigris. And then the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, these rivers are given specific names which answer to names of rivers known in either the modern or the ancient world. However, I don't think you could use the names of these rivers to determine the place of the Garden of Eden because the flood in Noah's day, coming in the later chapters of the book of Genesis, we'll get to it eventually, the flood in Noah's day dramatically changed the earth landscape. And you could say it erased these rivers, at least for the most part. Now, we can know some modern rivers today, such as the Hittical, also called the Tigris, or the Euphrates. There's rivers by that name today in the world. Because Noah and his sons, after the flood, they named some rivers that they saw in the post-flood world after these familiar pre-flood rivers. Now, verses 15, 16, and 17, God's command to Adam. Let's take a look at this. We read starting at verse 15, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying... Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God put Adam into the most spectacular paradise the world has ever seen. But God put Adam there to do work. Did you catch that line in verse 15? You know, we're, we're often, and sort of rightly so, we're so interested in the command to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that sometimes we skip over these important words in verse 15. In verse 15, it says that God put Adam in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. That's work. Consider this, friends. God gave man work to do before the fall. Now, certainly as part of the curse that will come upon Adam that we'll see uh, in some of our later teachings in Genesis chapter 3, as part of the curse that comes upon Adam, work is cursed, but work is not a result of the fall. God gave work to humanity before the fall. The idyllic state of humanity is not laziness is not constant work and no effort. No, God made humanity in his image and God works and God intends us to work. He gave Adam the work to tend and keep 
the Garden of Eden. Friends, work is something good for humanity. And it was part of Adam's perfect existence before the fall. Like what one commentator, Leupold, said about this. He said, quoting, The ideal state of sinless man is not one of indolence without responsibility. Work and duty belong to the perfect state. Okay, so that's one aspect of what we see in verses 15, 16, 17. We see this divine commission to work. But now in verse 17, God commanded Adam, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. The presence of this tree, the presence of a choice for Adam, it was good. It was good because for Adam to be a creature of real choices, what sometimes people call free will, there had to be an element of choice, some opportunity to choose differently, to rebel against God. If there is never a command or never something forbidden, then there can never be choice. God wants our love and our obedience to him to be the love and the obedience of choice. Theoretically, God could have programmed within Adam perfect obedience and perfect choice. But no, God wanted there to be real choice in Adam. Again, what is sometimes called free will. And when it comes to Adam in his pre-fallen state, maybe you could say that he did generally have free will, a will that was uninfluenced by a prior fallenness or sinful desire. But God definitely gave Adam choice in the Garden of Eden. Now, considering all that, look at Adam's advantages. Did you ever think about it? Adam had only one way that he could sin. How many ways to sin do you have? Do I have? I can't even count them. I could sin in a thousand different ways in a 24-hour day. You see, there are many trees of temptation in my life. But Adam, he had only one. There was only one place that would test his obedience to God. Obedience to God. And we'll get more to this later, but God made this command originally to Adam not to Eve. God had not yet brought woman out of man. We'll talk about that uh, in our next teaching through the book of Genesis. Now, verse 17, God made the command to Adam. He warned him, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God not only made his command clear to Adam, but he also clearly explained the consequences for disobedience. What would be the consequence? You shall surely die. And as we're going to see, as things work out, especially into chapter three, that's what's going to happen. Let's not get too ahead of ourselves. Let's conclude our time together in Genesis chapter two, verses one through 17. 
with seeing how this section, which speaks about Adam in the Garden of Eden, how does this point to Jesus? Well, I want you to think about this. Adam was appointed by God to be the gardener of the Garden of Eden. As we saw in verse 15, God put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. Now, we have to say Adam failed in this responsibility. Adam's sin not only had an effect on himself, of course, not only had an effect on Eve, not only had an effect on all the descendants of Adam and Eve, which includes everybody that I'm speaking to right now, but their sin, Adam's sin specifically, had a terrible effect on all creation. Romans chapter 8, verse 22 says this, For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs until now. Another passage in Revelation speaks of how God has subjected, because of the fall, uh, creation to futility. The sinfulness of humanity is not only hard on humanity, it's hard on creation. So you could say that Adam failed being a good gardener for the Garden of Eden. However, Jesus is the second Adam. This is beautifully explained in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 19. Look at that sometime when you have the chance. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 19. And Jesus perfectly fulfills this work of tending and keeping God's garden. That's what God gave Adam to do in the Garden of Eden. Well, in the garden that God the Father has given God the Son, Jesus Christ, Jesus does a perfect work. Adam didn't, but Jesus does. I find it fascinating that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, Paul's speaking to the Christians in Corinth. He's speaking to the people of God. He says, you are God's field. God is cultivating, keeping, tending, pruning his people. And he's doing it all as an expert gardener. You are God's field. Jesus Christ is tending God's garden perfectly. Where Adam failed, Jesus succeeds. Now, let me add one more thing about how this passage, Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 17, points to Jesus. In John chapter 20, verse 15, we read that Mary met Jesus the morning his resurrection was revealed to the world, and Mary supposed him to be the gardener. (laughs) That must have made Jesus smile, because Jesus is a gardener. He's the second Adam given to cultivate God's glorious work among his people. I pray that Jesus is gardener of your life, that you've come to Jesus in repentance and faith, and you have your trust in who he is and what he did for you, especially what he did for you at the cross. He's growing a beautiful garden. He's cultivating your life, keeping, tending, pruning his people and looking for the fruit that comes from them. Let me end with prayer here. Father in heaven, thank you that Jesus Christ is the perfect gardener over God's field. And we ask, Lord God, that we would submit to and recognize the wisdom of Jesus's work, tending and keeping God's field, the garden of God, 
of which we are part. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your rest on the seventh day. Thank you for your finished work. Thank you for your wisdom in arranging the garden of God in Eden and for growing the garden of God, the field among God's people. By our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we thank you for it all. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us today, everyone. For more information about Enduring Word and Pastor David Guzik, please visit EnduringWord.com or download our free Enduring Word 